Dating. It used to be pretty simple. In the olden days, your father would match you with a nearby landowner, and if you are lucky, you might live to the age of 30 before dying in childbirth. Alas, these days of romance are long gone. For real though, today we're talking about love, and you might think this is a bit frivolous or trivial compared to everything that's going on right now. And look, nobody is saying that dating is up there with the climate crisis or the cost of living. But let's be honest, finding love, keeping love, or learning how to live without it is a really big part of all of our lives. And how that happens, from the liberalisation of divorce to the rise of dating apps, has transformed in just a few short decades. The ground on which we meet people, try to make relationships work, is radically different. Politics isn't just something that happens out there, in parliament and workplaces and on the telly. It's also what goes on in the most intimate aspects of our lives, and I think that's worth examining. There's also the matter of the manosphere. In the last year, whether you like it or not, you've probably heard of Andrew Tate. Right now, he's detained in Romania while police investigate him and his brother for sex trafficking. He's been accused of multiple rapes here in the UK. And despite the fact that he looks like a peanut and he talks like a very stupid person's idea of an intelligent man, he's immensely popular on social media. He's managed to build up an army of loyal fans, mostly young men, by telling them that the only way they'll be able to have any kind of worth is by ruthlessly dominating women. And I don't think that he'd be able to peddle any of this bullshit if it weren't for real underlying problems that he was able to exploit. Loneliness, resentment, feeling like you're unable to get anywhere in the sexual marketplace despite being priced at reduced to clear. If these emotions can be leveraged to funnel men towards the far right, then surely we need to take matters of dating, love and the heart seriously. So to talk about all this, I'm lucky enough to be joined by two of the most insightful writers I can think of when it comes to the carnival of humiliations that is modern heterosexual romance. We're blessed with the presence of Annie Lord, author of Notes on Heartbreak and British Vogue's dating columnist. And we've also got my colleague, my comrade, my captain, Moya Lothian-McLean. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I feel like I know you really <laughs> well. Um, and I guess that's just a sort of standard parasocial relationship. Um, but what emotionally is it like having people read so much about the most intimate parts of your life and coming up to you and being like... Yes. <laughs> it's quite I don't know I don't find it that weird because I think I am a natural oversharer anyways like I think even before I started writing about myself like the way I would try bond with people would be like oh my god like I just went and pissed myself and like I did this like, and then like that and so I think it's just an extension of that and I don't find it I don't know I don't have much like shame so <laughs> you're like so I, I permanently damage the part of my brain which can process shame yeah so. yeah, yeah exactly so um but yeah they yeah I really like it when people come over and they start talking about themselves I feel like or that it makes them feel more comfortable about opening up to me I find it quite fun so where did it start for you writing about dating and romance in a way which was very revealing of your own life well, weirdly, actually, I started like at uni, I had a column in the uni paper about sex and relationships. But like, that was like, and um, I don't know that that sort of went away for a long time, because I did, then I just became like, started trying to get into journalism. And of, the main thing was like, don't write about yourself. It's all about other people, which probably should be the case. <laughs> and like, I did features and stuff. And then basically when I sort of looped back to it I did a um when me and my ex broke up I wrote an article about um 
it and then it kind of went viral and, and so then, what was the article about? So it was like Vice had this column called like the DM that changed my life. And I wanted to do it about like when he messaged me before when we were just friends or barely knew each other on a course being like, oh, are you out tonight? And because I'm a bit insane, I wasn't, but I got like fully dressed. I like, put oh, full face of makeup on, like got really glammed up and like went out and was like, oh, like I lost my friends. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I just wrote about like whether I would, you know, that film Sliding Doors, like whether I would still go out and do that or whether it was worth the pain of, mm -hmm. sort of the breakup and stuff. Um, and I guess people just related to that. And then that kind of went viral. And I was like, I just hadn't had that feeling with writing where I was like, felt, I don't know, just sort of wake up in the night and thinking of things I wanted to do. And just felt a lot easier than the writing I'd done in the past. And then, yeah, I, I just think writing's often the way that I process things that I'm going through. Like I journal all the time. I can't make sense of how I think often. I think until I've written it. Like I was watching this vlogger the other day and she was talking about how, um, she does like video journaling. And I was like, oh, cause like, I don't think the way I process things is like talking often. It's like writing it down gets it out of me. Mm -hmm. So I think like the column and writing about myself is all just kind of an extension of me. Like I would hate to, trying to look be at up. my own face while trying to process my thoughts. That sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> just watch it back on downstream instead. Yeah, I'll be like. <laughs> Can I ask a question? Mm. That very first column on sex and relationships at university, how did that even happen? Like, how did you get into that space in the first place? <laughs> it was actually cause like, you know, when you go to uni and your parents are like, join some societies like, and there's all those lame ones, like the cocktail making society, like. That was a cocktail making society? Yeah, I feel like there's societies for like all weird stuff, isn't that? Like, I don't know, they're like, I there's, literally there's can't think of a single other society. There's a rap society at ours, yeah. which is full of white boys, very funny. Like, I feel there was loads of stuff and I was basically like, oh, that sounds like a cool, you know, like writing and stuff, like that sounds cool. But I wasn't like in school and stuff, I wasn't like into writing or whatever. And then they just liked the, column and then it did become kind of a thing it's really weird I sort of pocketed that way because I was like oh but that writing was absolutely dreadful and then it's weird thinking back that that's where I started and how I've come back to it were you always into love and relationships was that something you thought about even before you wrote about it though was that something that dominated yeah, I think I've always been completely like I defo romanticize like I was gonna say a romanticized love <laughs> but that's like the same thing no I think, I think that's so, very possible like men and stuff like I like I think I've got a problem where I just see them as these like mythical, amazing creatures that I like are so much smarter and more interesting than me. And like, you know, have all these crazy love stories in my head that I think are gonna happen. And like, super, like just such a sucker for like rom-coms and those kind of narratives. And I just think they have always like completely fascinated me. And I think maybe now I'm getting to a point where I'm kind of unpicking that and trying to undo that work in writing. But it's, yeah, it's always been something that's like occupied me. So like, what, what do you think that, love or like the love of a man or like the pursuit of like a male love object will do because I try and think about this a lot mm. where I'm like well what am I chasing what is the thing I'm trying to secure and then I'm like oh it's trying to make my father come back isn't it like it's just <laughs> like all comes back to this one Freudian nightmare yeah um but but I think that part of getting older was realizing that the person I'm pursuing is a person. They're not mm. just a projection of my own fantasies. And that was quite disenchanting in some ways, but also really liberating in others. So if you go back and you go, ah, oh, I was romanticizing love and men seemed mysterious and better than me. Like, what did you mm. think they were gonna do for you? I think it's like maybe a lack of self-confidence and seeing them as like a vehicle for me to get better. Like that, like I, 
Def- even like with female friendships, I definitely feel more comfortable when I'm with my friend. I'm like bigging my friend up and being like, oh, like, da, 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 da. like they do, you know, like when mums are like, oh, it's so funny when they do this or like, da, da, da. and like almost in a way that I think sometimes can make my friends feel uncomfortable where they're like, oh, like. no, we like it. We love it. <laughs> <laughs> but like, she's so beautiful. <laughs> she's so smart. She's never so stop. insightful. Never stop. <laughs> but like, the way I think of liberating myself maybe isn't through myself being better. It's like attaching myself onto this more powerful being and then them doing it. It's their, it's your piggyback. How they them. see you. You only, you only yeah. become better and improved until once that person has confirmed it through their love for you, right? Completely. It's also weird. I've noticed like, it's so annoying because I love fantasizing, like, you know, before you go to sleep and you like make oh, weird yeah. fantasies in your head. But it's like becoming less and less enjoyable because I feel like I'm noticing all these weird patterns I do. But like one of them is like, say if I'm making up an insane scenario in my head about like some guy I've always fancied and we're like getting with each other. Like I'll imagine certain people in my life that I like respect or like what like <laughs> want their like what's the word? Approval. Approval. Watch like watching and like seeing it. <laughs> like the least sexy voyeurism, just like well done. Literally being like, oh he's hot or like he's so fit. fit. <laughs> it's really weird and then now I'm like when that actually happens it's great (laughs) (laughs) but now it's weird because it's like that's so much less fun when you notice all the toxicness of it or like I've said to you before like because now like those kind of off and on like things I've always romanticized are like when you see it and you're just like that's actually not fun. I just kind of want someone to like really adore me and like me. It's less fun. Now like the, the like long fantasy I'm creating in my head before I go to bed is literally like one thing it's like we meet he likes me we go out do you know what I mean it's like it's not it's not fun where it's like oh my god we're at a party like we haven't spoken yet like it's really interesting watching in real time your ideas of like love and relationships change have Mm. you noticed that throughout your writing yeah like it's I guess like when you just write things down you become aware of something it's like just becomes less interesting you, like when you're doing it and you've noticed a pattern, you're just less likely to do it, aren't you? But I definitely have noticed it just from writing things down and like talking to friends who've had therapy and helped me interrogate things. <laughs> I, I don't want to pay for my own therapy. No, it's a cost of living crisis, but you can therapize me. Literally. The group chat is just literally secondhand therapy. I have to say. My column is just Moya's thoughts. <laughs> That's it is true. actually getting quite rude at this point. Like I literally think 50% I've just like paraphrased what you've said. No, it's called a conversation. I literally got on the group chat and I'm like, control F. It was, like, it was really funny actually once on the group. What was it like that? There was something I wanted to find again that someone had said that was clever. And I think I'd put in, it, I knew they'd put it's giving and then the thing. And, so and, then, like and then I put it's in giving. it's giving and it just made me laugh at all the different it's giving. It's giving. <laughs> and like all the weird things that, yeah, it's funny. I, I guess one of the things I really wanted to ask you is that does it change your romantic encounters or how people relate to you because they know that you're writing and you're publishing and that something about them might make it into the hallowed pages of Condé Nast? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Like I used to, it's so hard to say because I think dating now people are so flaky and like do just disappear. And I've been really bad at like when I've gone on like a couple of dates with someone and it seems like it's going really well and then it's they've dropped off for whatever reason. I have don't like messaging and asking what it was. And I've just, it's yeah. Like it's an ha- exit interview, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, cause I just, it's hard to say whether it is that maybe... Because I went on a date with one guy and I really liked him. And then I, he asked what I did. And I was like, oh, like culture journalist. <laughs> and then he was like, what kind of art? Because that's so interesting. And I was like, just being so vague. And I was really confused because like, as the date went on, we were very like, oh my God, like, let's go to the cinema at the weekend. And like, it just seemed not love bombing or intense, but just like we really got on. And then it just kind of flayed, like nothing happened. And I was like, 
oh, maybe he found out what I did and freaked out. But then I don't know. Well, it's so hard to say. Like, maybe he did. But yeah. then he still likes likes my pictures on Instagram and is one of maybe those people now. Maybe that's the only part of his body that still works. You can just go. <laughs> Literally. And that's it. I, yeah, I think that's it. He, I, do, was, I do wonder... Do you, we actually think that dating has got worse in terms of flakiness and communication? Because this is something that we assert quite a lot. Mm. But when we you actually look, like I've been asking my mum recently, I was in the car and I said, look, how, when you were younger, did people just like not turn up? Did they not call you? And she was like, yeah, yeah, all the time. Mm. Like people would just drop off. But it, I think it, maybe it's different now that we have this expectation of the ability to constantly communicate. And we can see someone's life going on. We can see them mm. liking our Instagram pictures. So has it actually got mm. worse? Is it flaky? I don't know. I think like it has because I think, I think on the depending on the context you meet, but I think um, I read this book called The New Laws of Love, I think it's called. It was really interesting. And it was talking about like the privatization of um, dating, not in, like as in literally being private. Um, <laughs> and it was saying about like, um, you know, now instead of meeting people at work or like out with, you know, three friends, we meet like on dating apps and like that it's actually now people seem to think it's like messy or like bad or if you meet through friends, cause mm. it's like, oh no, I'm gonna have to see them all the time. Or like, oh, it's just a bit icky cause we have the same friends. And it's like, it's meeting through apps. You do kind of manage to avoid a lot of like stressful overlap but then through that it's just like you never are gonna see that you've not already got this like foundation already to build on or like any respect for them and it's just very easy to avoid accountability and just disappear and flake off I mean I, 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 apps is something which I really really want to talk about today and I also realize I've missed a lot because I've been basically in a relationship for four and a half years and so I'm like tinder do your children still use that I don't know but one but one of the things that I found when I was using apps for a little bit is that you had all these like hopeful faces looking up at you from the screen and I felt so brutal just swiping past and then it really disconnected me from things that I find attractive about people because then mm. I was like well is this someone that I should find attractive or like they've got the facial features arranged in a way that I normally like but because it's inert and it's not alive and I'm not seeing them in a context I ended up with a worse idea of what I wanted than before I'd used them mm. and so there was like a two-month window in which I used apps I felt miserable because I was like everyone else has got the rule book for how to use it and I don't and I think on these dates I come across as very jarring and then just got rid and I was like I'm just gonna do it the old-fashioned way if someone says I have a nice ass in the club I'm going home with them really <laughs> that's what I did that's that's, that's your metric it's what I did it so, used to be and I'm fine if someone says I have a nice ass in the club I'm probably like mm, too much too thirsty like, <laughs> it wasn't the first thing he said but it was true okay it's true it's true I could be that um sorry back to the, the app question no it's interesting like off what you said I was like I feel like I read an article about this and it was like saying about like it's interesting the rise of like the ick and stuff. And I think like when you are get do get used to seeing people in this like really like two dimension, I don't know, like it's all like really streamlined. Everyone's like portrayal of themselves. And like mm. when you're like cross checking every message and making sure it's perfect, like when a bit of humanness comes through, <laughs> it's like kind of disgusting. And I feel like that's maybe like why everyone's always going on about the ick. Cause it's like, I don't know. Yeah, like you just see them trip and you're like, ooh, cause all that stuff's been like taken out of. I mean, do you, do, you, do you use apps? I haven't in ages and I feel a lot better as well. <laughs> this is what I was going to say. Post-pandemic, do you think there has been a pushback or a movement against the use of dating apps somewhat? Because a lot of my 
female friends in particular, I've sworn off dating apps. They're like, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do this. I'm not on the apps. It's become sort of like, this has made dating rather than this siloed off piece of my life, which is also making me miserable in the pursuit of it. This has made it something that's either integrated more organically or something that I'm not thinking about constantly. And I do wonder if it's linked to sort of like post COVID, that desire for real connection. We were locked mm. up for two years. And people, all we had were screens. All we had was screens and people was thinking, I actually want to connect with people again properly. There was, a, I do feel like there's a real recalibration and reevaluation of what it means to connect, connect and communicate. And there is a crisis of communication at the moment, right? Mm. We are all kind of locked off in these digital spaces. You're, you're seeing a fatigue mm. really set in. And I'm wondering if like this, this removal from apps, especially for you as a dating columnist, mm. who's not on apps, is, does that, is that like the peak of, okay, well, apps maybe are not the way and the way we've been using them is not actually conducive to a healthy dating life. Yeah, like I, I think the reason I don't like going on them is because of that thing of just so many times, even if it seems like you've got on, it's just so easy for one or both of you to like disappear and avoid that just go start off. And like, it just, then you start to like, even you don't trust when it feels like you've had a good connection because it doesn't seem to mean anything. Whereas like, if you meet someone in person, like even if it's doesn't work out right away, it's like, oh, there's not as much, you don't have to worry about luring them back in because it's just like, they'll just kind of be around and you can just, if it's gonna happen at some point, maybe it'll happen. And um, I also, yeah, I wonder like whether, like, what am I trying to say? Like, if there's an idea that like apps, that everyone's like less committed and flaky now, I don't know whether that is the case or whether just meeting through apps requires a lot of determination on both mm. your parts to like not, because you literally know nothing about this person to like see them once and be like, right, next week again. And we have such busy lives. Like it actually does require quite a lot of determination. I mean, there was also um, some articles I was reading about how um, straight men and straight women have really different experiences on the apps, which bake in a kind of ruthless logic of like a sexual marketplace. Mm. And I'm just gonna like read this so I can get the numbers right. One study found that a typical woman would have to like just three men, while a man would have to like over 50 women in order to get a match. And that sense of, um, I guess amongst heterosexual men of like, I'm just fucking swiping on anything. Like just, I've got to play the numbers game. Mm. Is that, do you think that is also something which, makes connections more unequal or imbalanced or weird because mm. you've had to just sweep through so many fucking faces to like yeah. find one that wants to talk to you. Yeah, I don't know. Cause it's also like, I suppose that does still, people still say like, oh, it's easy for women. They can just go up to anyone in a bar and have sex if they want to. And like, I guess- Absolutely not. <laughs> no, when you say that, we could do that. Anyone could do that. The point is, do you like them? And mm. that's a very different mm. question. Like I keep complaining all the time. I say, oh, you know, I'd, I like to, I, I, I want to go out and like, shag someone essentially and my friends are like you could literally walk into a bar and shag anyone I'm like <laughs> yeah but I want to be able to like them yeah, like yeah. I want to like actually be attracted to them and it's in not that just way anyone. and in that way I actually think it's easier for men because I think they're actually more likely to find people they want to have sex with that are on their level whereas I think women yeah you could go up to anyone but you're less likely to find someone you want to there is an imbalance there when you're talking about like straight men and women who in terms of, you know, the s women always have to be the prettiest, wittiest, brightest versions of themselves. And straight men don't really have to, like the stock can be lower in order to, when we're talking about like the high value, low value, mm. whatever, in order to, and but also because of this idea that we would, I think you referenced recently in one of your columns about men are taught that they find the self through sex. 
Mm. And so the pursuit of sex is, that's that's central to them. So that's really funny because ahead of this recording, I was talking to my partner because I was like, you're a full-time man. Why don't, you, <laughs> why don't you tell me what your species is thinking? One of the things that you said is that, no, actually it feels that um, sex comes easier to women, mm. that um, men have to be... Uh, the initiators and the more active participant and men have to take on the risk of rejection in a way that women don't. And I was pushing back on him a bit because we were talking about this with regards to incel culture. And I was like, but women are lonely and women struggle to connect to people and women struggle to have as much sex as they want. Mm. The difference is, is that it's not seen as a societal crisis because we don't go on mass killing sprees because of it. Um, And so we were just sort of debating about like, is there genuinely a difference in how men and women are able to access sex or is it just that when men don't it's a much bigger deal i don't think there's a i think there's several things that i think the point the, the broader overarching things that everyone's dissatisfied people are not happy with the level of like communication sexual politics and everyone thinks they're being hard done by in that and we've fallen into this binary where it's like who has it worse Whereas it, why don't, why can't we talk about in these two groups have it hard in a different way? And there are these obstacles that are coming together to block a good interaction between two parties, whether that is purely sexual or whether it is romantic as well. Like there has been such a, I think there's a huge drive among people our age and of our profile right now to really understand what love is. You see like fucking all about love on every single social media feed. That is the, that was the book of the year. It looks sort of like a cult everywhere. People wanted to understand what love is and they're turning to like, you know, conversations on love, that other book. I think the world to change will be next. And to me, that is more a symptom of the fact that people have realized there's something wrong in the way they're interacting with romantic partners. Men also, there's been, there was like an article recently that was like, why are men, why are straight men not having sex anymore? Like, is it because women have too much sexual agency? And I don't think it's that at all. I think it's that the way all this like talk and discussion has made a lot of young straight men in particular realize that the way they have sex and what they get from sex is not satisfying, but they don't have an answer for that yet because we haven't had enough discussion. There's not enough sort of like public discourse about this because the way, the, the, the spaces where we're having it, such as online particularly, mm. and places like TikTok, all just feel like silo people into, you're a narcissist, you're mm. a red flag. Like we talked about, you know, men and incels. Well, there's a huge also um, contingent of young women who are so jaded by their experiences that everyone is a threat to them. Mm. Everyone is out to get them. There's this homogenous blob of men who are out to hurt them. And it's like these two wounded parties coming together for different reasons. Of course, you're just going to get blocks and it's just going to get worse until we find a way to have these public discussions. But they're so Mm. difficult because everyone's so sensitive about their own experiences and like how much they've hurt them. And that becomes trauma. I mean, do you find this in your own writing that when you're writing about sex or you're writing about love, you realise that the thing you're talking about and the thing that other people are understanding are wildly different? Because when we're talking about sex we're not just talking about like a particular set of physical acts we're also Mm. talking about status we're also talking about well how do I know I'm desirable um how do other people think about me once they recognize that I'm sexually attractive to others when we're talking about romance we're not just talking about like oh do I feel that like kind of like glidey floating feeling around someone it's also like well what does it mean when someone says that they love me and they're committed to me and how am I received by the social world that I inhabit. Like, do you sometimes find that what you're talking about, what people are reading, there's a conflict between them or have you never had to navigate it? Um, what in so in sense of like, what 
say that again sorry. <laughs> I, guess, I, I guess like um you know like no I'm just talking about sex and you're bringing all this other stuff into it as a reader yeah no I do definitely get like the vibe of um you know people being like oh he's so shit like or taking certain things I've said and then becoming more extreme and things like that I do definitely notice that oh what in um, terms of like this is abusive or this is yeah or like oh I've had a similar situation with a guy yeah he was being such a dick and like da 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 da, da and I'm like oh I didn't know I was I didn't mean to say that if that's what that came off as I kind of do notice that a little bit yeah I do think yeah in general language becomes like a lot more extreme and I yeah and like in articles in general I feel like there's such like with journalism of like wanting to find like a name for a thing like a trend to like write a piece about mm. I've definitely written those pieces <laughs> in my past but You're like I'm the first person to ever diagnose this I did want to bring this up actually because I feel like there's a real taxonomy mindset applied to dating now mm. like breadcrumbing breadcrumbing like, ghosting that's when you like just dripped feed messages. It's just like messaging sporadically to keep people on a mm. leash. But it's like everything from situationships, these entire new categories, which previously would have maybe just been covered by dating, or mm. uh, you know he's not texting very much, or she's not texting very much, have now been invented. And they're also very, very gendered. Like mm. for example, ghosting, breadcrumbing, all of those. Most, when you talk about them, they're most likely being applied, like women are the passive sort of like mm. victims of it compared to, and something else I've noticed, is there's no romantic content out there, popular romantic content in terms of like articles that give advice on a woman from a position of, like a straight woman from a position of romantic agency. For example, when you look up like, oh, uh, what to do, like a situationship or whatever, mm. then it's all like how to get out of a situationship, how to make him commit, how to do this, how to like put a label on it. How, what is this, what is this new thing and why and how you can escape it and get him to like commit to you? What if you don't want him to commit to you? What if you want to find, get some advice, popular advice where you're not just a passive victim who's desperately trying to entrap mm. a man? Like, it's really interesting. Why do we taxonomize things so much? Why do yeah. we those labels? Is it internet? But it's also a way of just reformulating um, quite sexist tropes of like, you know, it is the woman who wants to extract commitment mm, from the yeah, man yeah. who is kind of like a boulder, like a kind of reluctant boulder and like doesn't want to give it up. Mm. And so you have to contort yourself and manage communication and take on all that responsibility because you as the woman wants the commitment and mm. he as the man doesn't want to give mm. it. But I really, really want to understand like, why do we have to put all these new names in it? Is it because there's a digital generation who need, who who are performing this specifically for like an audience, a digital audience. So they have to find new names, find new phrases for it. Or is it just that like dating has moved into a new phase? Like dating as we know is relatively new, right? Mm. In the history of things. I, is it so like just it sucks being rejected and like wanting to make out that it's part of like this wider like ma like strange trend that you've been a victim of rather than like they're not into you. Do you know what I mean? Because mm. yeah. it's easier to be like, oh, he's a narcissist or something than like, I mean, actually, that's like doesn't work. But like, say, like, oh, he's um, leads people on. Actually, yeah, people don't even use leads people on. Really, no, they don't. Because <laughs> now it's like, oh, he's been love bombing me. I mean, yeah. what, what it does is that it, it in my view, anyway, is mm. that it like pathologizes yeah. behavior and mm. makes it kind of abuse adjacent. And so it's not just like I feel really hurt because whenever you encounter someone sexually or romantically, there's an mm. element of risk there. Like, you know, your dignity yeah. is always on the line. Yeah. And it kind of sucks when like, you know, that the bottom falls out. And so then you have to go, well, this is painful. Mm. If I'm feeling painful in a romantic context, it must be a 
abusive or yeah. Yeah. Trauma, like but that's abuse? that's what i'm asking whereas because like i said dating is relatively new in the grand scheme of history right before it was you know arranged marriage like you mm. get set up with the local farmer's son you're down the church, fine, bush, bash, bush. Uh, nuclear family, all of that. And then you look at dating as we know it now, where you've got two people who are semi-autonomous, it's still under the whole structure of like the patriarchy, et cetera, especially if you're talking about heterosexual relationship in particular. But dating as we know it, the way we practice it is pretty new with all the leisure time we have, all the like space we have. Uh, is this a new era of date digital dating, which is primarily the discourse and the way we think about it? Is it primarily sort of constructed by the way we then present it back to people online? Because that's our audience as young people, like the way we talk about things. That's why I'm wondering, is it is it that it becomes this trauma language? Because that's, we only got extremes online. We can't speak in nuance. We can only speak in, mm. you know, 280 characters. Like this thing happened to me and someone's going to read that and be like, he love bombed you. Mm. I love Bondry. Like I wonder if like um because there's so little accountability when you do mm. meet people on like apps and stuff whether like you know there's all this I feel like there's quite a lot of like online shaming stuff as well now where it's like like West Elm Caleb yeah and like posting screenshots of people's dating profiles like the way to feel a bit more power over it again when you have been ghosted or like all that kind of stuff is to like put it online and mm. like expose people in a way, which is really mean. <laughs> this also this also leads me to another question. It's like, why are in straight dating as well? Because uh, if we're looking for ways to regain power by, for example, you know, Western Caleb, that's mm. a symptom of the fact that within these interactions, women still don't feel like they have power. They mm. still mm. feel like there is not equality in sexual romantic relationships. And all they can do is appeal to sort of a wider audience for justice of some form for their hurt. So why in the advent of dating apps and the advent of what was meant to be more gender equality in the post the sexual revolution, have we not had an emotional revolution? Do we still feel so unequal? And is that actually reflecting dating? Like, are we still that unequal really? Mm. That's my question. What do you think? <laughs> it's a big one. I've just been yeah, thinking I mean, I definitely feel like because there's so few like men that I would want to date around that they, the ones that exist, like completely get to pick. Like, I feel like me and my single friends are like, we go to a party, there's like, it, lucky if there's like one straight guy that like it, we find attractive there and there's a sea of like amazing women. And I just think it does mean that like, those men then have a lot of power, which is so annoying. I mean, I, I, I guess like one of the things I was also gonna ask is like we're, we're talking about it from obviously a perspective of cisgender heterosexual mm. women, but the legalization, well, the decriminalization of same-sex relationships, the relative destigmatization of those relationships as well. It's obviously we still live in a world with a lot of homophobia and biphobia, but things have changed a lot. There's a lot of phobias, let's put it like that. 20 years ago, 30 <laughs> years ago. Is how have some of those changes perhaps impacted straight women's experiences of dating? Because I mean, one of the things that I certainly feel is that going into a relationship with a man, it's like, well, hang on, we don't necessarily have to be monogamous if we don't want to. We can make that decision. Um, you know, I don't have to be straight as a default. That could mm. change for me as well. Mm. Like, how do the existence of these changes, and in particular changes for queer people, reflect back and transform straight women's experiences of dating? Mm. I think personally, I think that they're only starting to even slightly kick in. I think they're only starting to see, so you see people like myself and Annie, who maybe like 10 years ago would have been a lot more sort of on a certain path in mm. terms of being straight women dating and now starting to question, 
you know, are we gonna pair up for the rest of our life? I'm like, no, I don't want children. I don't want this, I don't want that. And Annie's, you know, sitting here saying, the way I used to fantasize has completely altered. Like yeah. my, my world's been opened. So I really think, that, but on the same level, we still, there's still like a lot of hangover in terms of like, in our interactions, men have a certain amount of power, they can affect us, they make us go absolutely mental when they don't text back. Like there's still this weird, I've noticed this so much since becoming single in the way I interact with men, there's like two wolves inside me. The one wolf that knows that I have this freedom and agency technically and can pursue that. And then this other wolf that is automatically sort of like programmed in to worry about whether this guy likes me without mm. thinking about, do I like him? Mm. Do yeah. I, so there's this, and, but I do think that more and more these options that are being opened up, these alternative ways of going about things, these, you know, everything from non-monogamous relationships to just a different setup, a different way mm. of thinking. It's starting to kick in slowly, but it takes years for those impacts. It's like, it's interesting with queer culture in particular because it sort of mirrors the way that queer culture is adopted into the mainstream anyway. Mm. So you look at all kinds of like cultural products that come from queer communities and it's like, how long did it take from voguing initially to get to where we are now, yeah. where it's like, Voguing is just something that you see in clubs and it's like in every single ad campaign. 10 parties. Yeah, it's taken and like drag brunches, that's took what, 40 years? Mm. So only in, only now we're starting to, I think, see the leaking in of this these really interesting alternatives. Well, you could do it another way into straight dynamics, but you're mm. still not seeing that emotional revolution I talked about where straight women really have embraced liberation and men haven't either. And additionally on that, some like I've been talking to queer people recently and they were saying that some of these like really rigid power dynamics, patriarchal power dynamics have leaked into their relationships. Mm. So there's also that mm. going backwards, the more that, you know, queer culture gets to the mainstream, the more that they also, there's a leakage there. There's, and they were like, yeah, there's, you know, there's the dominator and the dominated. Mm. That That is starting to get into that because people are mirroring that and people mm. talk about that also in relation to say gay marriage, et cetera. It's weird because I I do think like I defo, you know, I'm not like, oh my God, I'm 27 and I'm not going out with someone. I need to get married soon. And I think the image of that is less of a thing of like kids, marriage, blah, blah, blah. But I think it's like still a thing and just maybe delayed a bit. Like I still think of myself being like in my 50s on my own and that stresses me out. Like I don't know if I, or like, yeah, I don't know if I've fully the idea of being single, yeah, it's, yeah, I still see it as a tragic thing in my head. It's like, like being, austerity deferred, but it's like- Yeah, just it's just, I've, I feel like I've got on more time and I think like my mum doesn't put loads of pressure on me, but I can tell she will, but it'll be a lot later than when she had it. But I still think there's an idea that at some point you mm. like pack it in, you've arrived at the future and, so and you're there yeah. and you find someone. Um, but what what about the image of being single at 50 freaks you out? This is the if thing as well, I'm like it. the happiest I've ever been and I'm single and it's like, it is weird. I think it's just like, just all that image of like being alone and like weird and living in a crumbling cottage with cats. Like, I don't know. It's just okay, once my house is crumbling and I have a cat. So that is literally my future. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so excited. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know. I think like it would just be nice seeing more like cultural things where it's like, because like the single positivity movement is a bit cringe, but like <laughs> it would be nice like if there was just more like, I don't know, you got to see some films where it was like, she was sexy still or something, do you know what I mean? I was gonna ask, do you think we all live in like a big city, mm. right? And do you think there's a geographic discrepancy in the way we practice singlehood and the way we think about singlehood? For example, if you were back in Leeds or even Otley, mm. would you, do you think that you're, you would be single? Do you think that maybe- Nah, you're... I don't think so. Um, I actually do get with more people when I'm in Leeds, I think. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I don't think so. Cause I think it would be just feel more weird. Like now, like so many of my female friends are single. And I think like, and also I think it's like so much, you know, in a small town, you're seeing the same people all the time. So you're like constantly brushing up against mm. people. Like, I don't know, like, you, if you see someone like a hot guy in a pub in London, you're not going to see him again, but you'd, in Otley, I'd probably be like, oh, hey again, hey. And then you'd start a rapport, wouldn't you? And then you'd probably... Yeah. I'm, I'm like, it's not me, it's where I live. But it's also, it's also <laughs> economic as well, right? So there's different milestones. So, yeah. you know, lots of people at, in my very rural background, it's like mm. they move in a lot quicker. Like, mm. it's just what you do. You meet someone, you move in with them. If you break up, you move out. Then you move yeah. in with the next person. You might have kids much yeah. younger. You, it's more likely that you're going to buy that house. You're going to still be on that path. Those landmarks are still available mm. to you at the ages perhaps that they were previously or closer to the ages they were previously. But I think it's also like being in cities gives you the opportunity to make and remake yourself mm. all the time. There's mm. a kind of liquidity. So it's like, well, I can be a homebody who really is into sourdough. And then next week, like I can be really into like fucking just like caning it all the time. Eras. And I can, <laughs> it's like, you know, a Greek tragedy where the mask are dropping mm. to the floor constantly and you, you get to reinvent yourself. But when you're in a small town and there's fewer people around, there's fewer things to do, but also people are a lot more stable. You mm. don't have this constant flow of people moving in and moving out. Your opportunities to reinvent yourself in that like, you know, constant mm. and sometimes exhausting way that you get in, in cities, I think is um, really inhibited. And I, I grew up in London, so I have no idea what it's like to be like you little country mice. But, um, <laughs> but my, my, my partner grew up in a small town near Barnsley and one of the things he often feels when he goes home is like, well, so many people I went to school with have kids. Like, you know, we're 30 and we're like, when our friends have kids, we're like, mm. babies having babies, mm. this is horrible. But you know, a lot of people he grew up with have two, maybe even three kids, mm. you know, they're married and it's different. It's this thing of like, we're not constantly reinventing ourselves. Like mm. who who we are and our social role in our communities was kind of defined by like mm. 16, 18, mm. 21. Yeah, and, and it was fixed. Yeah, and and I suppose like that's probably getting faster and faster, and maybe that's why people are breaking up. <laughs> it's, also, it's also community as well. Like the, the definition of community is completely different. Yeah. When you when you're in a small town, it's like who are you are in that community and who you play as a role in the couple. Even if you're in a queer relationship, a lot of like queer people in communities they're very domestic in like my small community is very domesticated mm. in a way that perhaps in London is either not available or is just not what people do it's mm. also like your flat is so much smaller you have to be outside mm. just to see daylight but it was it was interesting something that you mentioned before going on broadcast Ash which was talking about this idea of um, people in perhaps big cities who, you know, will move in quicker and speed up the relationship in order to attain some of that economic yes. access. And I didn't I didn't necessarily agree, but that's just because, and then I realized it was because I'm economically independent enough that I don't have to do that. Mm. Mm-hmm. But I was wondering what you think, Annie, do you think people, for example, in relationships here, is that sped up because, you know, they want to have a flat and they can't do it on their own? Yeah, it does. Yeah, definitely. I think that does seem like a thing. I guess like, people seem to do this whole like get their own place for a while when they're at home and then they move in together and then da, 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 da. and I think like in the pandemic obviously that made people's relationships get like a lot intense quicker mm. and also like sometimes I think like it's almost like you know with your dating and it, everything's so I don't know like where it's like ever the dating thing can go on for so long, like moving in together. Mm. I feel like when I saw certain friends, it gave them like the time they needed to really secure the 
bond almost. Like mm-hmm. I've had friends where it was like their relationship was very off and on. And then like in the pandemic or whatever, they moved in together. And then it really gave them time to like commit to each other. And then they were a lot better. Whereas like if they hadn't, it might have ended in the sense because it was like, I mean, so I, I, I was a pandemic mover in her. Mm-hmm. So we saw the lockdown coming and it was a case of, okay, what do we do? And mm-hmm. we we're like, okay, well, we're planning on moving in together this year anyway, so let's do it. And it it didn't feel like, um, oh my God, this is like, what, what the fuck have we done? But mm-hmm. th- it certainly made me feel like this transition from our encounters are just always blissfully romantic and there's Mm. kind of no pragmatism Mm. involved at all because seeing you is a break from work and it is a break from uh my domestic life and it's a break from all these obligations i have and Mm. then we're living together and it's like we are a household like the kind that gets recorded in the census and that's that changes Mm. like how we interact It's, it's interesting actually i feel like there is like a proper different courtship process now where like people sort of meet on apps like see together like straight away and they have like casual, they're like a casual thing where they're like, oh, I don't want anything for like a long period. Yeah. And then they go out and like the way, I feel like with our parents' generation, the way like a relationship would be marked was like by starting to have sex. Like it would almost be assumed that you were like exclusive and like in a relationship. Mm. And now it's like you ask someone, do you want to be exclusive? And then you're in a relationship. Yeah. It's marked by words rather than sex. Like, I don't know, so many people just like sleep together for long periods before they in a casual context before they date. It's It's, like the dating comes after the shagging. Yeah, it's very funny how the, because I was talking to my mother and the way she refers to like old boyfriends, she might just date them for two weeks, but she's much more, (laughs) she's much, she's much more able to use the term boyfriend because it had less weight almost. Yeah. Than now when it's like the boyfriend or like your partner, the commitment that it has within heterosexual relationships um, is, is so much more weighty. And I think for some reason, men particular shy away from that label but I mean I, this is one of the things which I've noticed a lot amongst um my friends and actually I experienced myself and I've realized that I just tried to block that memory out <laughs> which is you you are doing all the things of a boyfriend and a girlfriend like I remember there was this guy and we were seeing each other and I met his parents and he'd met my parents and all of that and he steadfastly refused to call me his girlfriend and I was mm. like but what am I yeah. and then I, I realized that um the difference between what we were doing and the status of being boyfriend and girlfriend, it didn't mean we would do anything different. It mm. just formalized the obligations we had mm. to one another. Mm. Whereas if he didn't call me his girlfriend, he could be, you know, doing the plausible deniability Charleston of like walking up to commitment and then backing off from mm. it all the time. And it, 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 when I see it come up with my friends and they're like, oh yeah, but we're not boyfriend and girlfriend. And I was like, you, you realize you're insane because you, it's, you are in a relationship you just haven't signed the contract yeah do you think there's a wider thing there about the way that we consider especially young people obligations to one another in society what like how obligations have been redefined what we owe one another now everyone talks in terms of like emotional labor transactions Mm. so is it something to do with this wider individualism that we are shying away from these obligations commitments to other people the fact we'll have to think about someone beyond ourselves and our own like id and selfish desires. Mm. It's interesting though, because I feel like women are often the ones using the terms like yeah. emotional labor, but it's men that don't want to be called boyfriends. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's, yeah. But is, Do is, you is think that, it would yeah. be on the same the same side of people doing that? Yeah, I think that does make a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of think this a lot, which is, you know, when I really hate the overuse of the term emotional labor. So mm. like, and I remember once I was talking to somebody and I was talking about the fact that 
my, my stepbrothers are white. And then they were like, yeah, it seems like you must do a lot of emotional labor. And I was like, well, yeah, because they're my brothers. Like, mm. who doesn't do emotional yeah. labor for their siblings? They do emotional labor for me. And then I kind of like was spiraling. So I was mm. like, this is such a crazy way to like quantify the bonds of love and nurturing and obligation and care that exists between mm. people. Um, but I guess it's like with the emotional labor thing and how you say it's like mostly women who overuse it or use it a lot, um, that maybe that's a way of, identifying what they feel is missing for themselves so you mm. name the labor you're doing how it feels unfair or unequal mm. but actually the thing that you're trying to say is i want more care mm. i want to be more yeah. valued and i think within that something that we've touched on quite a lot today without even saying it is there's been a rise of cod psychology terms mm. as a way to analyze the in these interactions the interpersonal interactions as sort of theory falls away so the more, the less that we have like theory and ideology, concrete stuff, maybe a political standpoint where we come from, you know, such as, I don't know, a Marxist understanding of love or whatever. <laughs> um, but the less we have that basis and the more it's like on the individual, on the interpersonal, the more there's been this rise of like cod psychology and everyone talking about, and yeah, this stuff has basis, but mm. like everyone being like, this is your attachment thing. This is your love language. This is that as their ways to What's understand. love language? Oh, love language is like, you know, acts of touch, no acts of service, uh, touch. Like how do you mm. like to be loved and how do you give love? But they're trying to these, again, I'm going back to this thing I did, this taxonomy, this fixed rigid idea that someone for the whole of their lives, the only way they'll express love like their preference will be to be touched or give gifts and they in return they want acts of service people are fluid people change it's like trying to Myers-Briggs mm. everyone when yeah, you know, what you I wanted five years ago is not the same it's not as the what same. I want now it's, yeah. it's this idea of cod psychology applying and then be, that being used to analyse these, these interactions instead of perhaps having a more political understanding of like and, and and addressing more broadly what is love especially from like a left-wing perspective what is love but that's the thing I really like about your writing which is you are so in the specificity mm. of the experience that you're having. And there's a kind of refusal to abstract it into cod psychology. And I think that's why, <laughs> even though I'm like, you know, I'm effectively an auntie and like a, you know, we're talking about maybe getting married one day or like, oh, what about shared assets? Like, I'm still <laughs> like addicted to your columns because I'm like, oh. oh, I love the naming of the thing mm. um, and not the taxonomizing of the mm. thing, which is a different kind of naming. Well, it's funny because it is kind of fun, like tax, you know, I feel like when you are saying like your star sign or like your love language and it makes you feel really seen mm. and like there is something like that strokes quite like a narcissistic like mm. thing where it's like, oh, what am I like? Oh, yeah. I'm so annoying. <laughs> like it is quite fun. And I, I don't know, like there's all that stuff isn't there about people like listing everything they want from a partner and like looking for that. And yeah, it is fun, but um what were you saying about it again then? That it's just, like just because that uh, our ways to analyze it fall short and the ways we talk about it fall short. So instead there's been all like this rise of cod psychology because mm. people, are, people are so desperate to understand and they want to know what's going wrong. They want to fix it. But I yeah. think they want to be seen and they want to be loved, but they can't, they don't know. Yeah. Why is it, they're like, why is this Why is this happening again and again? Why am I so disappointed I think, in love? I think mm. is it your narcissism is, is, is the word for it because it's this fascination mm. with the self and the naming mm. of the self and the like, who am I, who am I, who am I? And, yeah. and, and maybe like, like the horrible thing about because we now have all these mirrors to ourselves mm. right we have mirrors to ourselves in the amount of media we consume we've got mirrors to ourselves in the amount of social media that we participate in we've got mirrors to ourselves in how we interact with dating apps and the fact is is that a lot of the time for a relationship to work whether it's just like casual sexual or whether it's like you know 
deep commitment to kids in a Volvo is you kind of have to step outside of yourself. And you need communication. But that's what I'm saying when we're falling down, the communication. And I think that's why people are turning to these, you know, other ways like all about love, et cetera, because they're looking for manuals on how to communicate because what's happening already is not working for them. I mean, like, is there, we were talking about this before we broadcast and I, mm. I really want to ask you this, is that the the kind of like homo romanticus of like dating writing, like the romantic being is educated and middle-class mm. and lives in a city. Mm. Um, what does that then mean for how norms in dating are shaped if the people who are almost like the opinion leaders of it come from like what is effectively quite a narrow mm. socioeconomic background I mean do you ever think about that do you ever think what in the sense like days? maybe like my school friends or whatever would date in a different way yeah well yeah. like everyone who writes about dating in media right including myself um I won't name every name but like you know most of the women writing about dating who are really prominent mm. we're all from like middle class backgrounds we live in a city we're all Carrie yeah, Bradshaws yeah. Carrie Bradshaw types right mm. so how does that relate to like a, how dating is presented and what people want from dating versus what actually might be going on the ground mm. for people who don't come from those backgrounds. <laughs> well, something, something someone, Sean, Sean Faye was saying the other yeah. day, because I, I wrote a piece about- sort My of good like, friend, Sean Faye. My, <laughs> my very good friend, Sean Faye. Um, I wrote a piece about uh, sort of like breakups, right? And yeah. Losing love, being liberating. And she was like, it's, it, you know, this all strikes true for her, et cetera, but it's like, it strikes true because we might be of a socioeconomic background now. Mm. And you know, I've, I now live in like London and I make enough to like support myself. Mm, yeah. That I can have a great single life. Yeah. My life's fucking buzzing because, yeah. because I come from, because I'm now at a point. And you don't have kids. I don't have kids. I don't have any dependents. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not a carer. Like I'm very lucky in a lot of ways. And I, I come from, I'm, I'm at a point, wait, let me rephrase that. Jonah cut that bit. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm very lucky in so many ways and have these certain types of privileges, which mean that being single is gonna be a very different experience for me than other people, whether those are other straight women dating or people of other gender orientations. And we're also the ones who are defining what that looks like in the media because the media is dominated by middle class mm. people. I mean, can we, can we maybe talk about children? Because mm. 50 years ago, 60 years ago, you went on dates so you could get married and you got married so you mm. could have children. And those things, lined up there was no disconnect between any of them and now there's disconnects between all of them mm. maybe I don't want to date at all maybe I only want to date maybe I only want to get married but not have kids or to have an open marriage or you know it's like yeah every one of these things is now contested um and I was thinking about um what you were just saying about losing love and for me, experiences of losing love have, have been really character forming and defining, liberating. Mm. And then in my head I go, okay, but what was it like for my mom to divorce mm. my dad when she was a, you know, a parent of two young children? Um, my sister was very ill. She was always in and out of hospital. And my mom was having to retrain and begin a career all over again. And now with the benefit of 30 years hindsight, I think that she absolutely did the right thing and it was character forming and she's got all of these lessons that she has to teach me but at the time when she was doing it and she was in her early 30s so she wasn't much older than I am now it might not 
well, it would not have felt liberating or mm. like, I'm every woman, it's all in yeah. me. She must have just felt so scared and so mm-hmm. precarious. Yeah. And, and part of it is because she had kids mm. that she had to look after. Yeah, definitely. I feel like it's a lot more fun when you can just <laughs> go out on the pace with your friends. <laughs> but it, it's really interesting you said that because my mum's also a single parent and she, uh, yeah, she, my dad left when I was very young and she had two kids and she was... Moved. And now we both work for Navara. And now we both work for Navara. <laughs> and we don't want children. Funny that. Um, <laughs> but she she moved the family back. Well, she moved me and my sister back to where her family lived. Like, a lot of them lived in a closed area. So she immediately was like, right, these kids have to be raised by a village. I can't do this alone. Mm. It's really interesting how that would completely change your relationship and how you feel about yourself. Like, she was suddenly a mum, right? She, mm. she's, she was 42 and she had me. And I think so much about how she had this, like, it's really sad that I think it this way. I'm like, she had this amazing full life and then she became a mum. And it's it's mm. funny that I see that as sort of yeah. the death of her, her autonomy. Even though she went and did it all, still she finished her PhD. She retrained as a yoga teacher. Like she did all these fantastic things. She says having me and my sister was like the best thing that happened to her. But I cannot conceive of it because I was born. There's a bit of me that doesn't believe my mum when it. she says it. Because mm. she gets sacrificed so much. And because of the way, the era I've been brought up in, where like the ultimate thing you can do as a woman now for me at least is like have my freedom and freedom to me means no dependence yeah it means being beholden to no one and perhaps that's because the example my mother set in being like being left by my father was like i will never be beholden to a man like that i will never I'll never kids. be that vulnerable i will never be that vulnerable mm. and it's really interesting as picking up on that when we're young mm. but annie you've obviously got two parents who have like a strong loving marriage and was raising <laughs> your family <laughs> so family. how does that how does that You're like, like the nuclear family works great for me i don't know what to say <laughs> but like how's you want kids right like how's your perspective different mm. I don't know if I do oh. I haven't decided I think it depends I think it depends on who you're you with and what you're and whatever you you have to commit to for <laughs> yeah. that's like if I, I was Kylie Jenner I'd definitely have kids like now because it's like you because could just well that's the thing if I was Kylie Jenner I wouldn't do that I would never yeah. do that I don't know like so what was the question again? It was so, just like how do you think you like how your upbringing might have shaped your ideas and also like children? Well, no, I, that, I feel the factor? same fears of, that you guys were talking about where like I feel like I do believe my mum when she says me and my brother were the best things that ever happened but I also think like it's like your body like gaslights you <laughs> to use an internet term. Because <laughs> like, it's like I'm sure like you get all this rush of love but it's like it's almost like someone's been brainwashed like mm. how could you think that? It's like creepy almost to like especially when you're like are like you know I feel like I'm so like career driven at the minute mm. like social life and da 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 and it's like ew I could have a kid and then that just like go from my brain like I was like texting more the other day because I was like trying to work and there was these mums next to me having this really interesting convo and I couldn't tune out but they were talking about their kids and it was I couldn't tell if it was depressing or just like normal and I'm just being a weird self-obsessed person but like for like hours they just spoke about their kids and it was interesting to me because it was like what they were saying about their kids was like things I realized my mum must talk about me with her friends like being like oh she's, ha- she's hanging out with the wrong group or like um that I'm worried about this weird course they're going on I don't think it's like a proper course and like all this stuff and I was like oh that's so funny that they but yeah it was just weird that, that you can get to that that's all that occupies their brain do you think, do you th- as well, going back to what Ash was saying, do you think this is also why the nature of dating has changed? Because now the purpose is not necessarily for mm. straight people to have children. And mm. it's like you were saying, we are much more self-obsessed because we're not thinking outside of ourselves. Well, it's also the goal like, isn't here to go get married. The purpose of dating was just for straight people to yeah, have yeah. children. It was for everyone to have children. And if you were gay you and just you weren't it. having children, <laughs> it's like, enjoy prison. Yeah. Like, it, it was so strictly policed, yeah. that yeah. pathway. But yeah. then, then my mum, like, went out and, you know, she was... She was young, she was at my age when, 
you know, 1967s when the pill came out mm. and she was like dating around, had boyfriends, didn't have- She just had to say that she was engaged or married in order to get it at first. <laughs> That's so interesting. I didn't even think about that. Got to ask about that. Mom, yeah. But then it's weird, isn't it? Because <laughs> when people talk about that stuff, it's like, oh, your generation are so picky because mm. you can, you're just all choosy and da, da, da. But then I'm like, I don't think we've, we are picky. Like if you talk to female friends about like what they want, like, it isn't I think insane. It is We're definitely, it's not insane, but just- the Maybe, com- yeah, The actually, parameters have completely yeah. changed. Like I'm definitely picky about mm. what I want because I'm much more specific because I can afford to be. I yeah. have that choice. I don't know, like, I feel like when- You're like, yeah. my standards are lowering. <laughs> I can feel it. <laughs> is, Literally. It, is, is it like, confusing, you know? No, I don't know. Like, I think maybe- Your standards you, have got higher. Just as an observer. Well, I think like, I don't know, maybe I'm just, I, I don't know if like I look at, like say who my, I'm trying to like not insult my mom, <laughs> but it's like I wonder if like our parents' generation whether they did I suppose they do seem like they put up with a lot mm. worse, but also I I don't know I think also I think our generation I think our parents' generation a lot of the men are difficult because they don't know where they sit with the like they're not on the sort of post-war thing where they've mm. got their assigned role and they're all a bit fucked up from that. And then I think our men are a bit fucked up because- Their dads win the war. <laughs> or like they're, they've, they're also they're still not processed their emotions, yeah. but they're slightly better with it. But yeah. almost maybe that's harder in a way because they're kind of aware of all their problems and that's all kind of thing. But I, I don't know if that- And like, then you get Prince Harry, who's just like, here's everything he's the epitome. I've ever felt. No, he's the epitome of like a millennial man. Yeah. Mm. In, in my opinion, and like a millennial straight man in that he's late in life been able to discover this language of like feeling and yeah. emotion and tap in. But he's in a position where it's all about like, just the trauma he faced mm. and like the victimhood position rather the ages like it's really interesting i think women are i always say that women are forced to like do this we, we're basically like men like 10 years behind the emotional development of where women mm. were forced to be because of like mm. um patriarchy basically mm. um and now they're only just starting to undergo this like very rich sort of tapping into the emotion there's so much like when bruce willis and friends like yeah. has, learns to cry and he just cries he can't stop crying yeah like, is unlocked it's like, oh. it's, like <laughs> it's so often that like yeah. when you're date like go on a couple of dates that they're like oh i'm not in the place for this right now and it seems like a reoccurring it's, it's like, really happening. a reoccurring right. thing i mean you're sitting you're, here like, <laughs> no, no, but, no, and then it's like and it's you know when i have had those text messages i'm always like oh like they're just you you know making yeah. an excuse like da, da, da. but then also men probably are going through it a lot and that's why they're not in a place today you know, and why there is a slight lack of men around for women. The thing that you're saying about generational changes, I find super interesting because it reminds me of a conversation that I had literally um, at my mom's kitchen table and this must have been about a year and a half ago because my grandma was still alive. So it was me, my mom and my grandma. Mm. Um, my grandma came to this country when she was 17. By 19, she had a marriage and a child, and then there was gonna be two more on the way. And so when she is experiencing romantic and sexual life for the first time, it's in a context where there isn't contraceptives that you can legally procure. Mm. I don't think that abortion was available at that time. Mm. And 
the choices which came to define my sexual maturity just weren't there. Like for my mom, when she first was accessing the pill, she had to say that she was married or engaged. And the social norms around that time, that's when divorce is being liberalized, but there's still huge moral panics around um, single mothers. And, you know, they just about stopped calling divorced women fallen women, mm. but they'd only just stopped. And all of these things being radically different for me. And I think for for men as well, like you say, there was a kind of, you know, wartime ideal mm. of there were bombs falling on us all the time and we never talked about it. And that was fine. Mm. I just have a panic attack whenever I hear a car backfire. That's normal. That's fine. You've got the men who are raised by them, who are kind of, you know, older Gen Xers and younger baby boomers who were also coming of age in an era where so much was changing about people's emotional register so and that wasn't just about a sexual revolution it was also about norms around parenting changing with like attachment first parenting or like maybe don't beat your children perhaps you can talk to them and empathize mm. with them um and then the men who've been raised by that generation are different yet again mm. um and i'm just kind of fascinated by this generational transformation of all the relationships we have mm. sexual romantic um parental familial it's like mm. whiplash yeah you're just like jesus it's happened so fast and we've all and then you have the insertion of digital tools as well like dating apps i basically think all this stuff is really new mm. it's mm. really new and people don't look at that in the like the grand scheme of things like I always say we don't really know how to use dating apps properly which is why we're so dissatisfied with them we saw them as a replacement for just meeting people and the replacement for mm. the building of a relationship when actually they're just an introductory tool right mm. you should be on them just like say hey let's meet up that's it but mm. people have used them as like just could completely replace that whole process and we're re or even to meeting up in general and yeah, just yeah. like getting That's affirmation I mean. from it yeah and, and leaving it there have you ever found that that you're like oh I can just get the social calories I need mm. from interaction on the app I I've definitely like been you. rejected and then unthinkingly a few seconds later mm. just opened one and been like okay <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it's definitely a problem it's also way. the invention of like love as the primarily primary I guess factor in a relationship mm. as well that's what I mean about dating it's like love has become the primary focus like you were saying this entire recalibration of what this stuff means to us rather than you know if you also looked at say I don't know, Victorian working class relationships, you might marry someone, um, but there also might be like affairs outside the marriage. It wasn't like that uncommon for people in like- Not these just Victorian. I mean, well, that's kind of like the, 60s, 70s. I'm taking, the yeah, yeah, of course. I'm but I'm taking Victorian just because I'm thinking of um, the book by Hallie Rubenfeld, The Five, which is this amazing look at the lives of the five women killed by Jack the Ripper. Mm. Um, instead of their death, she focuses and does the social history of their lives. And all of these women who were made destitute at one point or another, but they have, like they have primary relationships and they all break down. And then that slowly puts them on the path, which is interesting to where they eventually end up, you know, homeless or alcoholic and in a position where they are able to be, unfortunately fall victim to the serial killer because they're on the streets and they're vulnerable. But it's the breakdown of primary relationships in their life which provided them that structure that, put, that initially sets them on that path. I mean, there's something which I kind of want to ask both of you mm. and it's about the role resentment plays <laughs> in how we interact with dating and romance mm. because when it comes to say someone like Andrew Tate and the Manosphere and pickup mm. artists you can see how loneliness gets turned into resentment which is directed at women mm. and then it justifies a worldview where it's like you will have status as a man if you just dominate women enough yeah and then there's also this kind of um the proliferation of like 
gaslighting, love bombing, breadcrumbing, mm. ghosting, which like turns like ordinary acts of hurt into something that's abuse adjacent in a way which again makes resentment and fear the like basis on which heterosexual men and women interact. I mean, I guess the thing I want to ask is like, one, have you ever noticed the role of resentment in your own mm. life? Yes. Either being like directed at you or you directing it at someone else. And two, how do you think we break out of it? How do we think, mm. how do you think we change it? Yeah, I think kind of with what I was saying earlier, I definitely think there is like, it's when you've been hurt, like this idea of like public shaming is like quite a good way, but like it feels like an easy way of getting some of that anger out by being like, you know, posting an embarrassing screenshot or like I've spoke to people where they've said like their friends, like someone was saying it the other day about like a guy friend of theirs, this girl was like, said like, oh, can I try before I buy or something and wanted to see a picture of his dick? Like, and then the guy sent her one and then she like put, put made a TikTok about it and stuff. And like, you know, and like all this kind of weird, I don't know, I've, I, yeah, I I'm definitely- I'm so scared my partner gets hit by a bus tomorrow and I have to like date again. Am I gonna have to interact with TikTok people? No, you won't. <laughs> the thing I've noticed about you, Annie, is I think you turn your resentments into frustration at yourself. Oh. Because you you never oh, seem such to, a nice person. You're you like, are. what a great thing to learn about myself. <laughs> you turn it into something where you're like, why did I do this? Why did I do that? When it's mm. actually something that's happened to you that someone else has done, which maybe yeah. even it gives you more maybe control in some ways, but it also means that you don't have to blame. I definitely have a, a whole thing where it's like I have this idea where like I'm gonna the more I perfect myself, the better I'll like do. And it's so not what, you know, how people actually are when they fancy someone, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But it's like, oh, you know, when I've written this book or like, you know, learned this thing, then I'll be, or like gotten this skin treatment, mm -hmm. like I'll be right. But so, so maybe, yeah, the resentment goes it's like, on like, myself. Beyonce got of, cheated on. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah, not linked to our it's not, yeah. yeah. Um, I've definitely had men resent me as well. <laughs> but um, I don't know if I can talk about that without. <laughs> I, I definitely, I think resentment. We can, we can yeah. change names to protect the guilty. <laughs> yeah, we can. If you want to talk about it. Um, you don't have to. I actually have a horror story I can tell. <laughs> um, so uh, I'd been seeing this guy. Um, I ended things because it mm. was just obvious to me that we weren't compatible. And a few months later, he rang me up and he was like, uh, do you want to go for a drink? Mm. And um, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm really glad that you're doing so well. And, you know, it's great you're in a good place, but um, I just don't think it's a good idea. And he flipped immediately. And mm. he was like, you know, I've been wondering for ages why you are the way you are. It's because your dad left. And I was like, that's true, but you shouldn't say it. <laughs> um, and then a while after that, I was at a party and it was a couple of days after my birthday. And it was... You know when you're in that phase and you both recognize you fancy each other mm. and so you're meeting up in a place where lots of people are meeting mm. up but you you're really to see gravitating. Each other. Mm. Um so it was uh, that time for the me and the guy who's now my partner mm. and you know I was like well you have to buy me a birthday drink and all that and it was it was really nice and I remember we were sitting down and um our knees were just touching and it was just like the most electric thing oh, in the world because I was like pretend you don't notice but also don't move a muscle in case mm. it changes and i just rem i just remember that feeling um so vividly enter the guy who had um you know said that i had major daddy issues um and we, we chatted i was distant but polite and i think i don't know now i look back on it and i go did you come to this party because you wanted to rekindle something i don't know um he 
saw me leaving with the guy who's now my partner, chased us out and was like yelling that I was a bitch and a cunt and I'd ruined his life. And he like got in um, my now partner's face and was like, enjoy stirring my porridge, mate. Like it was horrible. But my main feeling when this happened was embarrassment. Mm. Like the embarrassment was mine. Mm. And now, four and a half years on, I look back and I go, no, that was really embarrassing for him. I didn't mm. do anything. But I felt like this reflected so poorly on me that I'd made this choice or that like I'd failed mm. to contain mm. a messy situation. And which which yeah. which I also didn't, you know, behave like a saint. Like I, I could mm. see how, mm. how, how I contributed to it. But um I remember being so embarrassed in the face of a man's resentment mm. that mm. I couldn't identify that he was the one who'd done something wrong. Well, this is the thing, I think with ma male resentment, it's often violent and angry. And mm. women's resentment is often to try and gain social exclusion for that person. That's yeah. mm. Or like eye. becoming a victim as well. Yeah. Because I think like Victimhood, the way yeah. you're Passive. taught to get attention when you, like as a woman, when you're little, like from your parents or whoever is like, oh, he hit me or like da da da, mm. and then being upset and crying, and then everyone crowds around you. Your pain, and it's like I definitely feel like completely attached to that. I don't know. I feel like it's like you know, if you are out and you're talking about a guy being shitty to you, and everyone's like, oh, I like I so feed off that mm. feeling of victimhood, and it's such a horrible it's, mm, it's thing funny to like, use. But because recently, obviously, like. I think relationships I've had have made me realize and recently I've been doing like lots of reflecting about the role of resentment in my relationships mm -hmm. and the role of like ex-partners resentment against me and how that manifests versus how my resentment manifests. Mm -hmm. And I carry so much resentment mm -hmm. for men in general. And that's something I'm really trying to pick, I think. Do you have like a book of imagined slights? No, like not slights. It's <laughs> just, I imagine, uh, you know, I went through like core beliefs and my core belief was one of them was that men will, ultimately always try and crush me and humiliate me, which is not true. I mean, it can be, you know, sometimes true, but I have to believe it's not true in order to move through life. Mm. If I want to become a better person, I want to have better relationships with men particularly, I need to not believe that. Mm. Um, and I was thinking about how my resentments really like manifest and it is, you know, presenting this one face of like someone who's hurt me, which might, you know, be objectively accurate, but without admitting to the things I've done as well. It is that idea of like, I was, you know, passive, I was this. And when I look at my behavior, I'm like, no, this guy can still have hurt me and done all these things. I still wasn't passive in that situation. Didn't mean I deserved it. Didn't mean I warranted it. Warrant it didn't mean my behavior warranted what mm. happened. But there's two actors in a relationship, two people who have different perhaps degrees of agency, but I still had some agency. Mm. I still, and that would, that actually gives me the ability to move past my resentments and look at it for what it actually is. Or also like me staying Passive is mm. a choice I'm making sometimes. Mm. Like, sometimes, yeah. You know, and I, I, my, this drives my partner mad. He'll be like, tell me what you're feeling. I'm like, I physically can't. That's also, mm. that's also part of like resentment as well. It's like you can, with women as well, some of the things that we have as a as power or rather some of the things that particularly me and my friends have, won't be all women, um, is to hold up, withhold. Mm. Withhold and pull back and pull back and not talk. For some reason, not talking about how we're feeling or like not being, or, you know, splurging all out of one and expecting them to understand and then saying, mm. saying, you know, another splurge, saying, actually there's this, 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 and oscillating without having thought really about That's our positions. interesting because it's kind of like, if you read like um, 
Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. <laughs> <laughs> that's Great, that tone. Um, Which is the book I first learned about from Clueless. Oh, really? So funny. I, I read it for research, but I actually just loved it. But it was like, because the interesting in that, it talks about like men going off into a cave and how you need to let them go off. And like that's how they process mm. their emotions in silence. But you're kind of like... Sounds I don't like you're saying yeah. women think, go can do that and I bottle think, up and then yeah, yeah. I think I would think women can I mean anyone is, is capable of these behaviours and one thing that Bell Tooks, Hooks talks about in like the world to change is that the patriarchy dominates our relationships not just in the sense of man and women but the roles that we take on mm. which mirror patriarchal mm. dynamics in like you know the dominator and the dominated but that does not mean women are not engaging and underpinning patriarchy and that lack of dissection about how we do that and how we don't you know might not challenge this in our everyday relationship hard as it is mm. and as res- much as we might resent having to do mm. that because that's also a thing resenting the fact that yeah we'll probably have to do a lot of this bloody labor like that's you know in relationships it's like we were talking about earlier if someone wants to up their self-esteem there's so much work involved with that say you're dating a man who is treating you poorly not treating you with the respect you deserve he's not terrible he's not an abuser but he's just not treating you right mm. the work you have to do there is first of all you have to be a, like in order to break that pattern, you have to analyze it. You have to cut off that guy. You have to work on yourself. I resent having to do all that work so much because Mm. also you think that person's never gonna change. I cared about them so much and they hurt me and they're not gonna change. All that's gonna happen is yes, I will grow, but at what cost? Of course you're gonna resent that. Of course you're gonna feel terrible. Mm. And But you know what has to be done both from a political perspective and for yourself because otherwise you stay there, Mm. stuck. I mean, just thinking about like how we start bringing these things together, I was wondering if we Mm. could go around and say something that we've learned about dating and romance in the past year Mm -hmm. and Mm. something that gives you hope, which I know is not a word we often use on downstream. so much hope. Um, Moya, would you like to kick us off? Men are not from I would Mars. Love to end with you. Men, <laughs> men. What I've learned from dating in the past year is that men are not from Mars. They're from Croydon. They're from <laughs> no. They're from various regions around the country. I like to date provincially. <laughs> um, they're not from Mars, and they're not an alien species. And the one thing I didn't want to do is the one thing I have to do, which is pay more attention to men and the construction of patriarchal masculinity because it is not the only form of masculinity that is out there. There are others. And that is the thing that gives me hope. Patriarchal masculinity is one form of masculinity. Mm. Um, and by it really engaging and interrogating that, not only for the sake of my romantic life, but for the sake of just like my wider politics, I think this year I've learned and learn to hope because I've developed a really strong politics of love. And that is mainly from a community space with my friends. And the love of my friends has taught me that nothing is terminal and that there is hope for romance yet, but we just really have to believe because optimism is the only thing that will get us to a better place when it comes to love and dating. Optimism of the will. I don't think Gramsci was talking about dating, but he really should have been. (laughs) Um, I mean, I, I, I just, I really hear what you're saying about the love of your friends. And I think for me, one of the things I've learned is that the love of my friends doesn't just sustain me, it also sustains the relationship that I have with my partner. Mm. We rely on them so much for advice or guidance or support or just a break from each other or having new things to learn and experience, we can come back to each other. And there's a way in which I see relationships now that I didn't, you know, say three or four years ago, where I don't see us as this little node with our backs to everybody else. I see us in a community being nourished by everybody who we love the most. Um, Something that gives me hope is that I used to be really scared of change in relationships. And I thought that 
the business of a relationship was like locking down a set mm. of conditions and trying to make them last forever. And the thing which I've had to learn in the last year, and it's my partner who's really led the way with it, is that change can be really good and reviving and I shouldn't be so afraid of mm. it. Um, and it gives you the power to be active and agentic within your relationship and make things better together rather than start at the peak and just have a slow decline forever. So that's something mm. which makes me feel intensely hopeful that, you know, relationships aren't in inherently terminal. Mm. Um, it's, oh, it's funny as well, like what you just said, it made me think like, I always saw something that I used to quite like when I was going out with guys, like, you know, you could do something really shitty and no one would find out because they don't talk to their friends. <laughs> <Not ever. laughs> it's like it's bad because then there's like you're picking up all the like you know you're being a whole entire support system um so it's not good <laughs> but, but if you funny. start an argument <laughs> you normally get away with it um one thing i've learned is therefore like men aren't gods and they're not these crazy mythical creatures that are always right about stuff and I think sometimes when I get with people I feel a bit deflated after because I've expected that they're going to give me something and then it's like Ugh. like I think I said to you the other day um I had sex with someone and I was like um this Welsh farmer it's very dramatic <laughs> no I got scared because then I thought it might sound like someone else and I got scared so I wanted to be more specific. Like, an Irish farmer okay. you could just restart and say I had sex with someone I met back home I had sex with someone I met back home. Um, and um, yeah, I'm, after- We're gonna keep that whole bit in. <laughs> <laughs> you can keep that whole bit in. He definitely, definitely Why, doesn't listen to Navara. It's really interesting. I think you are saying that you find Salford through sex. Yeah, Just well, like well, after, after <laughs> I- You're a guy. <laughs> Ooh. No, um, cause I think after I like, it's so funny how the like warm fuzzy after go after you've had sex and like oh that was so fun like I went up to someone in a bar like that was fun how quickly you sort of crash in that and it didn't it just goes and I was like immediately like oh I want that affirmation and attention again and it's not because I've been celebrating I keep saying like oh my god I'm in my player era guys like da -da 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 -da. and it's funny how easy it is to have that kind of like on nights out to to be um to get a connection with someone and have fun getting with them but then it's actually not intimacy because I'm not really letting them know me or having any connection like recently anytime I've like put myself out there or tried to talk to someone like every time I've been like texting a guy I just stop replying and stuff and it's like I think even and more so when I like them because I think that's actually vulnerability and intimacy and that's what I'm like ew about whereas like going up to a guy in a bar has quite become easier so I haven't made as much progress as I thought you have you just <laughs> but, become emotionally avoidant <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've gone from emotionally anxious to emotionally avoidant. My yeah. God, it's like um, good cop, bad therapist. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's progress. You're um, a player. You're in your player era. But maybe what I'm saying is that I've become more self. What well, I've noticed, I'm more self-aware because I just started because out with I started out with a positive thing, and then I was like, Woo, <laughs> it's not positive. It can um, be positive. Yeah, I've got Moya makes me hopeful for no. the. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, what makes me hopeful? I think like that so many people are getting a bit sick of apps and like are trying to find connections in different ways. And like, I think that's definitely a long process. Like I'll notice like when I go to a party or something, like the day after I'll be like, oh, there was actually quite a lot of hot people there, but I don't see it because like, I'm so used to like, you know, romance and like socializing being like in two completely separate things now. And like, I think gradually it is starting to drip feed into my head of like, oh, look around a bit. And like, um, 
you know, when you're drunk, sometimes I feel like you can just immediately forget everything. But like, I don't know, in bars and stuff, I'll like defo notice. It, it's like I'm, it happens more naturally where I'll go, oh, hi, I'm Annie, without me having to like be like, oh, I'm going to break this cycle. It's just started to happen more. And that has made me a lot hopeful. Because I think, you know, when I was writing like my New Year's resolutions, like it can be so tempting to be like, have regular sex or write something like that. Whereas like, it's a lot more productive to be like, you know, put yourself out there more or like, um, have better, more healthy relationships with you people you meet or like something like that. And I, yeah. So putting myself out there more and being more chaotic is what I'm being hopeful for. Continue <laughs> to. <laughs> well, I think I'm really here for the be more chaotic because mm. also for those of us who are kind of, you know, in fortress coupledom, it's really nice to peek out the window and see what's yeah. going on. Like, I'm like, oh, people are having experiences. Darling, do you see they're having experiences? It's <laughs> the purge out here, I'm afraid. So. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for joining us. Oh my God, no, I had so we, much fun. We would love to have you back sometime. I would love that. <laughs> um, and you've been watching Downstream. Thank you for spending time with us over sharers. Goodbye. <laughs>